Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. This week is a super special episode because a lot of you have been demanding that I have Joe Jorgensen, who is now the Libertarian candidate for president on Kibbe on Liberty. We made it happen. You demand it. We made it happen. This is going to be a great conversation. Check it out. I butchered it so bad. You're the Libertarian nominee for president, and uh, that's historic in a number of ways, and, and we've never met before, so welcome and, and hi. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's start with, uh, it, it's interesting, and I, I didn't watch the the online LP convention, and I guess it went on for days. It was like it was like an episode of Game of Thrones or something, and, and you know, people died along the way, but... Uh, you um, were in a crowded field of about a dozen candidates, and how did you how did you win? What 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 brought people together to to vote for Joe Jorgensen? Well, I think I presented a great argument that we don't have to sell out our platform, we don't have to sell out our principles, and yet we can present a message that the American people uh, will listen to because. You know, in the 1970s and 80s, we tried with, it's my body, I can do what I want with it, or it's my money, you can't take it. And that's not how the average American voter feels. What they want to hear is, how did they uh, afford their mortgage when health care costs are so high? Um, how come their kids' school uh, quality has gone down, education is going down? So I think that we can show how we are the best solution. You did seem to bring together the factions, as I understand them. There's there's kind of the purest caucus that, you know, anything less less than 100% Murray Rothbard, although I'm sure they'd argue about that too, um, versus the, the the people that that want to persuade. And that's your whole mantra is persuasion. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. And I am a purist. And it. I, we've got the best of both worlds. You know, liberty is what right is what right is what is right. I botched that one now. Uh, and uh, liberty works. So, yeah, my wife is constantly scolding me because as a as a libertarian, I always fall back on on quoting dead economists to make my point. And and she's always reminding me that no one knows these guys except a couple dozen of us. And and it's really cool to prove your libertarian bona fides, but but if you actually want to talk to people, you probably have to get beyond that. Right. And even though I have a PhD and I teach at um, a top-ranked college, I talk like an everyday person. And by the way, not just as a fake, you know, to be a candidate. That's just who I am. Yeah. Uh, in fact, my dissertation chair complained about that, that I talk too much like a layperson. So um, I don't, I never give people like the name of a theory or talk about liberty in abstract terms. I talk in concrete terms, which by the way, we know from psychological research, because that's what my degree is in. We know that uh, what works, what's more memorable is to give concrete examples and to speak in concrete terms rather than abstract. Yeah, I love that. And and uh, towards that end, I'd, I'd love to, to learn a little bit more about you. I think I think people are starting to Google your name and they're, they're starting to see that the LP has a candidate. And, and I want to hear about you. And I've, I've done I've done some cyber stalking and uh, and you, you do teach at uh, um, you teach at Clemson. You're a senior lecturer at Clemson University. 
Um, you're an industrial psychologist, but but let's go back to the beginning because you you started your career um, working at IBM. What was that all about? Well, basically, I got my undergrad degree in psychology. However, my husband was going to continue in school, and I just thought, what's the quickest way I can get out there and earn a living? And so I got my MBA, worked for IBM, and uh, and and the. PhD in industrial organizational psychology, that's actually more of a business psychology degree. So we deal with thing, things like uh, teamwork, leadership, motivation, that kind of stuff. So it's, it's a cross between psychology and business. I was thinking about that. It strikes me that, that all of us libertarians are, um, well, cats are libertarians and perhaps we're even harder to herd than cats are. Um, and and maybe, maybe the the movement, not just the party, but the movement might need a little bit of industrial psychology, trying to trying to create some systems that, so that we could actually work together and do cool things. Uh, will you take that project on even even as you serve as president of the White House? Absolutely not. <laughs> I'm going to handle easy things like being president of the United States. <laughs> yeah, you're you're gonna you're gonna accomplish world peace and stop uh, stop police violence against innocent people, but nobody nobody can take on. Um, getting the libertarians to work together. Yes, I'm going to leave that to the uh, national chair and uh, executive director. So I'll leave it in their capable hands. <laughs> Talk a little bit about um, um, business psychology and 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 from your perspective, sort of the 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 governing philosophy that that allows workers and and hierarchies to function. Um, I'm just curious what your perspective is. I mean, first of all, I have had, I, I've received some emails from other industrial psychologists who are upset with me because I'm not doing more of the whole planned thing. I'm, I'm not sure if you've heard of the book Nudge and yeah. basically other economists that are saying, okay, we can, without people realizing it, kind of make them do what we want them to do. And so they're saying wait a minute, you're an IO psychologist. And by the way, technically in South Carolina, I'm not supposed to call myself a psychologist, but loosely speaking, I'm an IO psychologist. And yet, um, and, and yet here I am saying people should be free to uh, go outside if they want to during the virus. And then I'm getting all sorts of the, you know, central planning psychologists and psychology tends to be left leaning anyway. And they just don't understand it. And basically my answer to them is, People have a right to be stupid. It should not be against the law to be stupid. And that's what I'm trying to um, impress upon the elitists who think that uh, since I have a, a degree, I should be steering the people one way or the other. But I will say that uh, I'm really big with uh, behaviorism, with reward and punishment. And what we have right now is we have a government that punishes hard work. It punishes uh, fathers for staying with some families, and it rewards the opposite behavior. In fact, can I tell you a quick story, uh, since you wanted me to go? Please, yes. So I went to the wonderful state of New Hampshire, uh, and that's where I spent more time as a VP candidate in 96. Great state, great people. And uh, they have a monthly meeting outside at this wonderful little, you know, pub type of restaurant. And it was probably, and I won't name the place, but probably like some of the worst service I had seen. Uh, there were a lot of us, but there were two of us. We had completely finished our dinners before somebody else at our table even got his dinner. Well, I found out later what was going on is 
the owner opened up after the virus, but the government is continuing to send paychecks to all of his employees, and they actually get more money staying home. So he can't get his employees back to work. He got like three of them back. And so he's having to train all these new people. So, you know, I understand reward and punishment. And I understand if you pay people to stay home and not work, they're not going to go to work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, it's it's kind of refreshing to hear about um a psychologist that believes in people making choices and, and that that uh, with the proper incentive structure, everybody's going to, to do the things that they need to do to, to create something beautiful. Uh, Cass Sunstein is is sort of one of our intellectual arch enemies here because he, he doesn't understand that, that beautiful things happen when when free people are allowed to just work stuff out. And it's it's a nice metaphor because the you know the, the a business or an organization is is just a, a smaller version of, of of how we try to function in civil society, how we can get along. Right, and you mentioned how your wife complains about your um, bringing up dead economists. So Milton Friedman is one of my all-time favorites. And by the way, I actually flew on a private jet with him from California to Texas uh, oh, back cool. in 1980, right when he was coming out with the free to choose. Yeah. And Basically, economics is just the number side of psychology. If you raise prices, people will do one thing. If you lower prices, somebody do, you know, people will do another thing. So it's psychology and numbers put together. And he gave just the best examples about how, for instance, it's in people's best interest to not discriminate. I love his example about the wheat. If you're a baker, are you going to buy from a white person with a higher price of wheat or a black person with lower price wheat? Now, can you discriminate? Absolutely, but you're more likely to go out of business or not have as big of a profit for yourself. So, you know, rewards and punishment, it's like gravity. Uh, you don't need the government putting rewards and punishments out there because, and this is where Adam Smith comes in, uh, so you've basically got rewards and punishments that are guiding people in the free market. And that's why we call it the free market. Yeah, and I, um, I'm a big Adam Smith guy. And we are we have now fully gone down the path of dead economists. But, um, you know, everyone everyone points to the wealth of nations. But I think the theory of moral sentiments is is a very persuasive argument. Um, it's, it's essentially a rebuttal of the straw man knockdown argument of libertarianism is that we're all selfish and we don't give a damn and we're just out to to do better for ourselves and and you'll you'll do anything to anybody to get there and and adam smith argues the opposite that that free people um have a moral sense of responsibility and i i think i think liberty is a responsibility and and i, I don't feel like we talk about that enough um and and we sort of seed words like responsibility and community and 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 justice to to the the progressive left and and I feel like libertarians are the only only ones that actually understand what where that comes from and how it works right and now I'm going to go full libertarian on you. I've never mentioned Ayn Rand in any of these interviews I've done. But yes, the virtue of selfishness. In fact, I was in a third party debate in Chicago in which there was a socialist on stage and the Green Party and others. And uh, the socialist was like, you know, we don't want doctors working for profit. 
And my response was, you better want a doctor working for profit. And by the way, the two specialties in which they, which are the most free market, in which there are profits, would be uh, cosmetic surgery and LASIK surgery. And in those two fields, prices have gone down, quality has gone up, because they have to compete for you. And that's what you want. So, yeah, that's it, it's just great, again, that liberty works and liberty is right. It's funny you bring up uh, Rand. I, I consider myself sort of the intellectual bastard child somewhere between Ayn Rand and Jerry Garcia. And, <laughs> and some people think that's weird, but, but I think it's the, the connection. What I mean by that is a connection between uh, the individual right to, to determine your own life and the beautiful thing that, that happens when free people come together and, and create a, bu- uh, a community and, and could, can do something together that no one of us could do alone. I don't think those two principles are in any way inconsistent. Exactly, exactly. Good point. So um, the, uh, I, I, I do have a, a gotcha question. I, I, was, I was reading about you, and, and it's only a gotcha question because no matter what you say, you're going to upset somebody. Um, but I was, I was curious if you've looked at all at uh, Jordan Peterson's 12, what's it called, 12 steps or 12, 12, rules, for life. 12 rules for life. I went, I went and saw him give a talk, and, and I've always been very intrigued by him, but, but he's, he's a different type of psychologist. But what do you think? Yeah, he is, my understanding is he's a clinical psychologist. And I have seen, I, I, I haven't read anything. Um, I have been busy campaigning, but I have seen snippets of him on YouTube, and I think he's awesome. I think it's great that somebody wasn't muzzled. Well, although he is Canadian, so that might explain why he wasn't muzzled by the American Psychological Association, which is very left-leaning. So uh, I think it's great that somebody can come out there and speak his mind. And he's got this, um, and it gets to the sort of personalization and and, uh, persuasiveness part of things because I think I think the part of, of Jordan Peterson that matters to me is just um, that freedom is a responsibility and if and if and it's just common sense but I don't, I'm not sure we have so much common sense anymore it, it's yeah. like if, if you want to get your life together if you want a better life if you want you know Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez always talks about dignity and economic dignity and I don't think there's a single government program that can give you dignity I think you have to to sweat and struggle and earn it, and 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 I think a lot of the, the 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 depression and and frustration that young people have today is because they've been told that that a politician can do that for them, and I think it's horrible. Oh yeah, and it goes deeper than that. In fact, I gotta admit, I was a little upset when I first saw J- Jordan Peterson out there making a big splash because I thought, you know, this is stuff I believe in. How come I didn't think to to monetize this? Yeah. But- uh, but I show a cla- uh, I show a movie about self-esteem, it, not really a movie, but uh, a, a film clip about uh, self-esteem in one of my classes. And they looked at it and they said, okay, we, what we need to do is give every kid a trophy. We need to tell everybody, aren't you wonderful? Aren't you great? And then that will boost self-esteem. And then they found out that, nope, that does not boost self-esteem that the only thing that does boost self-esteem is if you have accomplishment first. But here's what's really interesting, is part of the reason why they started the self-esteem movement, and I don't know if Jordan talks about this or not, but part of the reason they started the self-esteem movement was because they wanted to get rid of like the school shootings. They thought, oh, people feel alienated. We want them to feel good about themselves. Well, then they did a study, and they found out that um, uh, 
uh, prisoners in uh, prisoners actually had higher self-esteem than college students. <laughs> and basically, if you give somebody an inflated self-esteem, they are more likely to be aggressive. They're more likely to be violent and they're more likely to trample other people's rights. So not only did it not work, it had the opposite effect. Yeah, I mean, that instinctually that makes a lot of sense to me, but that's, that's fascinating that, that you have data to back it up. Um, one more question before we get into the nuts and bolts of, of winning the nomination. I see that um, one of the courses you teach along the lines you were just talking about is pursuing happiness. Yes. And, and I, I love the idea that libertarianism is ultimately about respect and happiness and, and peaceful cooperation and all the beautiful things that people can do um, when those, those are the rules of the game. What tell, uh, You're not paying us, but uh, we're not paying you, but tell us, tell us what that class is all about. I'll, yeah, I'll send a tuition check to everybody in the mail. Yeah. Well, first of all, let me say the number one cause of happiness, social relationships. And uh, you can have a, a great social relationship. You can have fun with your family and laugh and have joy no matter how much money you have. Number two is work. And there's that corny saying that uh, if you love your job, you never work a day in your life. That's absolutely true. Now, here's the thing. They work kind of a get, well, like in conjunction with, you, with each other. If one, if at least one is going okay, you're probably okay. So if your job is going great, um, but you have problems with the wife, problems with the kids, problems with the in-laws, um, that's okay because at least you can go to work and kind of go, you know, <laughs> or... If work is going lousy, your boss is yelling at you, you're afraid you're going to get fired. If you've got a loving family, that's great. But if neither are going well, then you're probably not going to be very happy. And it is true that money doesn't buy happiness, except it does buy happiness at the very lower level. So if you're only making ten, twenty thousand dollars a year, then yes, money does buy happiness. Not because you get to go skiing, but because basically, if your car breaks down, you don't have to worry about how am I going to get to work. So it's it's not because you get to go out and buy things; it's because you don't have the everyday annoyances. So there, there's a few of the uh, a t few of the top points. Yeah, we won't spoil it all. We want people to still pay for the class. So, yeah. um, but you know, I, I was going to go in a different direction, but that that. Uh, uh, brings me to a subject that that you've been very strong on, and I, I was I was really pleased to see that you have been a vocal critic of of governors and the federal government locking down the economy in response to COVID. And and my first reaction when when I saw this happening, I think in early March, I started hearing people talking about these sorts of things. I very much worried about about what it what what is the what is the human impact of, of locking people up and separating them and disconnecting them from their jobs? And for people at the margin, if you're making ten, twenty thousand $20,000 a year and you're wondering whether or not you're going to be able to put, put food on the table, um, I worried about all that, but, but nobody, um, mostly on the left, but I, I'm not sure that the right was that much better on this. Uh, nobody thought about the sort of obvious consequences of doing this thing. Um, what was your perspective? Yeah, well, first of all, if you notice, all the people telling us to stay home, they still get their government checks. Right. And I saw on the local news an epidemiologist, she had a PhD in whatever, epidemiology, and she was 
you know, Skyping from her nice, comfortable living room saying, no, we can't come back to work. We need to stay out another couple months. And I thought, well, yeah, you got a PhD. You probably make a good living. And guess what? You get to work from home. How are these people who wait tables or cashiers, how are they going to continue to work? So, you know, in other words, it's easy for you to say, and the tens of millions of jobs that are lost, those are real jobs and they're really hurting people. And as far as the psychological aspect, I haven't seen the uh, latest data, but again, we're hearing about increased suicides, we're hearing about depression, and also people not even going to their cancer treatments. And remember what I just said, that the number one cause of happiness, social relationships. So if you're not having social relationships, or, or if, if you're not regularly seeing people, then uh, that's going to actually um, uh, you know, make a dent. In fact, another little statistic for you from the class, uh, it turns out that kind of being a recluse, not having any friends that support you, family or friends, that gives the same mortality rate as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So, so I, always point, I always point out to my students, now that doesn't mean you can go out and smoke just because you have friends. <laughs> you know, it's right. better to do both, have friends and don't smoke. But that just tells you what social animals we are. The fact that not having friends is like smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That's, that's, that's incredible. And that's what the government is doing to us. It's, it's kind of tragic that and, and everything is so damn political and and I, I, I was actually, I, as someone that's watched everything become tribal and political, I was shocked at how quickly the, your position on, on lockdowns in response to COVID became a, a fundamentally political position. Um, and the tragedy of that is that we're not going to have a, a serious conversation about the consequences and we're not going to parse out the, the as, from an economist's point of view, the costs and benefits of, of lives saved, lives lost and and, you know, one of the accusations to those of us that were worried about lockdowns is, well, you just care about money. And right. that's, that's again, a straw man argument against libertarianism. It's just about money. But it's not about money. It's about lives saved and lives lost. And, and, and people live longer, happier, healthier lives when they're free and they're flourishing. Yep. And how many times do we hear about unintended consequences? And notice those aren't the same things as foreseeable consequences. Like anybody who knew anything about economics knew that Obamacare was not going to make healthcare more affordable. It was going to make it less affordable. Well, same thing with shutting people up and not letting them go to their jobs and see people. I mean, did anybody think about depression or suicide or not being able to uh, check on your mother who's sick, who maybe needs supplies or something. Is this going to be an issue that you talk about a lot on the campaign? And and do you, do you think it's going to play in November? Well, it's tough to say. I'm trying to emphasize health care as one of my main issues because health care is literally a life or death situation. And I think this is one of the biggest misconceptions that we're hearing uh, politicians out there saying, well, free market didn't work. We have to go to socialized medicine. Well, the, if, if I could get one message across to every American voter, it's that we do not have a free market system and have not had one since at least World War II. So the, the free market would actually fix the problem. It's not something we need to fix. And going to a single payer system is, is just scary. And when they say Medicare for all, 
I immediately think VA hospital for all and all of the rewards and punishments again of a, of a monopoly, which again, the left never explains why big corporations are so evil and why monopolies are bad, but oh, monopolies are great when it comes to your health care. You know, it seems like that would be too important of an issue. So I do like to talk about the coronavirus and that I get to explain in practical terms, okay, here's how the FDA has messed us up because the Libertarian Party for decades has been emphasizing the FDA, even though the average person, you know, they, they don't walk around thinking, you know, I want a politician who can straighten out the FDA. You know, they're not thinking about the FDA. But here's a great example of how I can say, okay, the FDA just affected you because the FDA kept testing kids off the market. You know, those people in South Asia who got tested, they got tested with the kids that you weren't allowed to have because of the FDA. They, they did the same thing with uh, N95 masks that where they would keep sort of moving the goalpost. Um, and it was sort of an anti, I, I suspect ultimately it became more of an anti-trade thing than a um, health and safety thing. But there's all sorts of examples from this this lockdown. You mentioned one of them, um, cancer patients foregoing treatments. Uh, pet peeve of mine, it's, it couldn't be more stupid to see governors and, and I, I believe the attorney, uh, I keep saying attorney general, but the surgeon general at the, at the federal level, this idea that, that all of these hospitals should, 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 should suspend uh, so-called elective procedures and they, and they lumped cancer treatment, cancer surgery into elective treatments. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> if you have cancer, that's not elective. And it's, it's, the, it's the height in arrogance that, that a politician would have any idea how healthcare markets work and, and they didn't imagine the unintended consequences of that. Yeah, and that's the worst part is that a year later, two years later, when we see deaths go up, they're gonna say, oh, unintended consequences, like anybody with an IQ of you know 80 couldn't figure that one out. Yeah, and uh, after the Italians did it, uh, Governor Cuomo decided, this is the most shocking thing to me, he decided to herd recovering COVID patients into nursing homes, which it didn't actually take a rocket scientist to know that that was, that was a, a death trap for those, those poor individuals. So we do have sort of living, breathing examples of what central planning does when it comes to healthcare. And, and hopefully we can connect with people because there is that sort of cognitive disconnection between I hate monopolies and I hate concentrated government power when it comes to policing, but oh, let's, let's do it in healthcare. What could go wrong? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'll tell you what can go wrong. You can look over at, uh, you know, uh, the UK, which uh, gives bonuses to doctors for not uh, sending their patients to specialists. You can look at waiting lists that people die on. And uh, I hate to defend Republicans too much, but I really think Sarah Palin got a bad rap because, you know, for calling them death panels, because... She actually nailed it, and and yeah. the statistics are clear. Yeah, well, you you can see the the, the waiting list um, in in the UK. It's much worse um, because because of their completely centralized system. But we have waiting lists in this country now, and it's going to become more and more obvious to people. and And I hope that the reaction is, well, we need the government to take this over. Um, sometimes that is the reaction. So healthcare is a healthcare is a, a big part of your platform. Um, what what else is what else do you think is going to move people that are looking for a third alternative to vote libertarian? 
I hope what's going to move them is to bring the troops home and turn America into one giant Switzerland, armed and neutral. Uh, the Democrats were traditionally the party of peace, the anti-war party, and yet uh, they basically put a muzzle on uh, Tulsi Gabbard. She's out there trying to explain how isn't peace great, and they don't want her to say anything. And Hillary was such a hawk. Joe Biden's a hawk. So I'm hoping that a lot of Democrats are saying, you know what? <laughs> I don't want soldiers all around the world uh, creating problems. It was kind of shocking the way that they uh, marginalized her as she started to get traction. It was quite blatant the way that they kept her off the presidential stage. And, you know, she used to be a, um, a senior official at the DNCC, and they, they just shut it down. And, you know, the, the Republicans are guilty of the same thing, although there is, a, I, I would argue, a, a stronger um, wing within the GOP that's skeptical of, of permanent war and, and nation building, uh, primarily uh, Senator Paul and Mike Lee. Uh, one-time Republican Justin Amash and, and Thomas Massey. And, but the GOP is constantly going after them as well, much in the same way that, that the Democrats went after Tulsi Gabbard. So I guess there's, uh, when it comes to war, there's, there's more one party than two. That's true. And, you know, Trump, that was one of his promises, that he would bring the troops home. And all he's done is basically rearrange them. Or if he'll take the troops out, he'll put drones in, in their places. Well, that's still meddling. That's still giving them a reason that they think they need to attack us. So, again, yeah. not justification at all, but it sure gave a good recruiting tool to uh, bin Laden. It appears um, a lot of people argue that, that sort of Trump's sort of unconventional view that Iraq was a mistake and that he didn't want to be in these never-ending wars was, was one of the issues that worked for him in, in 2016. But, but your argument is that it was all talk and he didn't actually do it. Well, he hasn't. Just like it was all talk that he was going to make government smaller, that he was going to get rid of the deficit. Uh, we aren't even going in that direction. We're actually going in the opposite direction, getting bigger deficits. And he can't blame the coronavirus because he was heading in that direction a long time before that. Oh, yeah. Like, imagine what our government might have been able to do if they hadn't have already run up $20 trillion in, in debt. And, and of course, the, the states that are most hardest hit, New York and California specifically, have um, their fiscal dumpster fires long before this. And, yeah. and they, they could have actually uh, done some good if they, had, if, if they had sort of managed their house a little more responsibly. Oh, yeah. And I point out to people that, you know, one of the reasons that the polls got it all wrong is that they didn't poll either people who never voted or people who hadn't voted in 20 years. There were a lot of people out there saying we are sick of the same old, same old. We want something different. We want an outsider to come in and really make things different. And I completely understand why they voted for Trump. And you look at him, he comes in as president without 40 or 50 years of political baggage. You know, he's still not paying back favors that got him to be mayor or U.S. House or whatever. So he comes in at the top and he still can't make government smaller. So the fact that he as an outsider can't make government smaller, that should end any discussion whatsoever as to whether a Republican president could ever make government smaller. Yeah, I mean, it's that that was a that was a myth that that. Um, I personally have, have given up on a long time ago, and I'm speaking as someone that very much tried to make the Republican Party fiscally responsible and 
and I love uh, I love chasing unicorns, I guess. But um, you know, I want to talk about so so we've been we've been tough on Trump, and and by the way, Joe Biden has has a pretty much a, a horrible record when it comes to foreign policy. He's never seen a war that he didn't want to get into. And, and that, that's an interesting position for the modern Democratic Party to be in. So if you're actually interested in someone like Tulsi Gabbard or Justin Amash or Thomas Massey, um, it, it appears like that's, that's, a, that's a wedge for libertarians to, to attract people. We're the only choice. Um, an, another issue, and I've, 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 I've done several shows on this, and I, I know you've been talking about it a lot, you've been, you've been acting on it a lot, is not just criminal justice reform, but, but police violence and, and sort of the, the institutional uh, racism that is, is the outcome of this yeah. process of, of making everything illegal and then giving this monopoly force on power all of these incredible protections so that they're never held to account. Um, this might be a place for you to, to, to reach uh, uh, Democrats who, who must be wildly disappointed that, that Joe Biden, who is essentially the architect of this, is, is now their nominee. Oh, absolutely. Um, if you look at it, crime is a local issue. Uh, assaults, burglary, robbery, all of those happen at the local level, and the police should handle it at the local level. There's no reason why the federal government needs to get involved in that whatsoever. And what do we do? We have the federal government who taxes uh, citizens and then comes back to these police departments, and they dangle a tank or a grenade launcher and say, hey, wouldn't you like a free tank? And of course, no. Free, when you hear free, of course you want it. And if you're a police department, you're thinking, well, our, our people paid for it with their taxes. You know, we don't want Alabama to get it or California, so we want to take the free tank. So now what you've got is you've got equipment from the federal government, you've got free training, you've got additional funds, and before you know it, you've got a militarized police department. And here's the point I'd like to make out to, to the point I'd like to make to the Democrats who keep wanting a bigger federal government, look at police as a local issue. What if you had a referendum and you said, okay, would you like to raise taxes um, to maybe, uh, you know, build a gymnasium for the school or build a new park or something like that? Some people might say yes, other people might say, no, our, our school's good enough. But what if they had a referendum that said, would you like your taxes to go up so our police can buy a tank. <laughs> you know, the chances are people would say, no, <laughs> we'd rather have the school gymnasium. We really don't want the tank. So, uh, but that's one way that the federal government does it is because they take our money, they raise our taxes, whether we like it or not, and then give us stuff that we don't want. So if, if you want people to have control at a local level, which is what the Democrats are saying, uh, then let's have control at the local level. And of course, um, Democrats and some Republicans argue that that you know, we we just can't afford to be in so many wars, and and the pipeline from from all of this 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 militarized war gear, and these and these armored cars and everything that local police departments are get is is the fat defense contracts, that that are are basically feeding the budget. You know, you can never fully fund the Department of Defense, um, but. It, it strikes me that if we're if we're giving armored vehicles to local uh, uh, law departments, that maybe we could stop that. 
Yes, yes. And you mentioned Democrats. Another point that I would make is, you know, they all know the story about Rosa Parks and how she was a hero for refusing to sit in the back of the bus. Uh, what they don't know is that that was a government-owned, government-run bus. And so you're a Democrat. Why are you going to the very people who are causing the problems? And also, I mentioned the debate I was in. Uh, this was almost comical. The socialist closed in her closing, she said, the Department of Defense is the largest polluter on the face of this earth. And then the next statement was something about how awful corporations are. <laughs> and I, you know, I was like, okay, what just happened there? And it's like, okay, I'll agree with you that the U.S. government is the largest polluter on earth. So why are you going to them to fix the problem? They're the ones who are causing the problem. Why do you think they're interested in solving the problems? If they were going to solve the problems, they would have solved it by now. You know, one of the uh, one of the things that that I've been very interested in is is sort of opening my ears and and empathetically listening to democratic socialists. And um, I always uh, I was was fond of of arguing that Bernie Sanders is kind of a um, Jerry Seinfeld version of uh, of Ron Paul. It's sort of bizarro, Jerry, because in a lot of ways they're railing about the same stuff. You know, too much war mass incarceration, the war on drugs, crony capitalism. And then Bernie makes this sort of uh, fantastic leap and, and says, that's why we need more government. Well, of course, those are all stories about abuse of, of concentrated monopoly power government. So I, I'm sort of hopeful that, that the, the, the young people that are attracted to that stump speech, and AOC gives um, a, a similar, uh, an, an attractive stump speech, but but from our perspective, of course, our solutions are all wrong. Um, do, do you think Do you think young people are a place where where the LP can grow? Oh, absolutely. And you mentioned uh, Ron Paul and Bernie. Remember Dennis Kucinich? How Ron Paul and Dennis Kucinich agreed on a lot of things, and he was just about the most liberal person besides Bernie. Um, and they agreed on many things, but the other things, it was how you get it. But they both wanted the same thing. But absolutely. And my message to Bernie supporters would be, the reason I'm not a Bernie supporter is because I think that the little guy should have power. And I know that that might make their head spin because they're thinking, well, yeah, that's why I'm supporting Bernie. But it's like, no, <laughs> what Bernie wants is to take power away from you and give it to the people in Washington. Why would you want that? If you really want to help the little person, you need to look to the Libertarian Party. So, so one of the things you did, uh, I want to go back to uh, um, how you might reach out to conservatives and and mm -hmm. talk about something that that's probably controversial with some conservatives. You you sh you uh, showed up, and I think it was in New Hampshire. I'm not sure. You can correct me. At a Black Lives Matter vigil for the victims mm -hmm. of of police violence. Where was it? Tell me about that and, and tell me why you went. Yeah, it was a candlelight vigil for um, George Floyd. And they did mention some others as well. And uh, we do have racism built into the system. And not just recently and not just the police. You can go back to when they freed the slaves. Uh, after they freed the slaves, the slaves were offering their services. They were excellent craftsmen because you know they were the ones doing all the work. And they offered lower prices 
because they were starting out, which by the way is what I did when I started my company. So they're offering great quality, great prices. And the whites, instead of saying, well, I guess we better offer better quality and lower prices too. They said, nope, we'll just write laws to keep them from being able to sell their services. And that's been in there ever since. And if you look at police brutality, and I, I know a lot of people say, um, well, I just don't resist. I put my hands on the wheel and I don't resist. Well, first of all, that doesn't always work. But keep in mind that uh, that the police do um, pull over blacks a lot more often. In fact, there was a kind of a viral Facebook that went around of this woman in South Carolina who hired a black man who owns his appliance, his own appliance company to come out and fix her washing machine. And he said, oh, I would never drive out at night because I, I'm afraid of what would happen to me. And he said that he had gotten stopped. I couldn't believe this six times in the previous year because he's driving around with the truck with, you know, washing machines on the back. And the cops are just assuming that he's stealing them. And I thought, I, I, I can't imagine living in that world. I, I can't imagine being stopped six times and I'm not even speeding. So I think that finally the message is starting to get out. And I, and I hope it does. And, and, and last, if we look at what's inherent in the system, the drug laws. First of all, cops go after blacks more often for drug laws. And if you look at the sentences, sentences for um, drugs that people of color use have a much higher prison sentence, much longer prison sentence, like crack cocaine, than the drugs that whites typically use. So it's right there in the system. So I, I was, uh, my initial reaction after Ferguson of, of the phrase Black Lives Matter, um, and I've talked about this a lot, but it, and, and my knee-jerk reaction was, no, all lives matter. And it didn't, I didn't understand what they were trying to say until I had an opportunity to, to listen to a presentation from, from some of the activists from Ferguson and, and what they were trying to say at the time, and I think this is a big part of what this message is today, is that no, you don't understand black lives don't matter enough when it comes to the administration of, of justice. And that's, to me, the difference between racism and systemic racism is the system you're describing, the laws and the government and the way that, that, that the man has used the power of the state to come down on, on black people. And I think, I, think we should, I think we should openly talk about this stuff instead of just falling into this all lives matter or blue lives matter. Um, I have plenty of beefs with, with some of the, the, the Marxist aspects of Black Lives Matter, but, but oh, the yeah. phrase itself means something and, and we should at least understand what they're trying to say. Right, and, and it is correct to say all lives matter. Of course all lives matter, but it's just a bit tone deaf because they don't realize how they do live in a different world um, than people of color, than people who live in the poor neighborhoods, that, that they're in the same country, but they do have a different experience. And, you know, and, and a lot of that was caused by the government, too. It was the government who started these housing projects. In the olden days, poor people were interspersed with people who had more money. So if you were looking for a job, your neighborhood might say, oh, you know, they're looking for you know, somebody to work in the warehouse where I'm a manager. Come, you know, come apply for a job. And people could help each other. And then the federal government comes along, segregates people all into one big housing project, where they can't help each other out, where they can't um, rise above it, and uh, now, now how do they get the foothold? How, how do they get started? 
and it's basically just government saying, you know, not in my backyard. Let's um, let's let's put a bunch of people who need help all together to where they can't really help each other. Very similar policies uh, imposed by apartheid South Africa, and it was it was primarily about economics. It was about where you could live and how you could get to work, and how much you could charge for your labor. And and, and we very much, um, our government very much embraced the same things. Um, right. And then the federal government, of course, with their welfare laws, basically punished fathers for sticking around with their families. Again, unforeseen consequences, unintended consequences. I don't think so. Um, let's talk nuts and bolts. And uh, I've, I've, I saw you mention, um, you know, you supported Gary Johnson, and I did too. And and uh, but but you've been critical of that campaign because you don't feel like it built the party. Tell me, tell me about the goals of your campaign and what you think you can accomplish. Well, the number one thing that we're going to do that is different is we are going to share our data with national. And what happened with the previous campaigns is they didn't always share their data like they said they would, or in one instance, they gave the data like a year later. Well, what good does that do when the campaign is over? So what we will do is give our data in real time okay, here are our people, and then what they can do is they can pass it on to other candidates down the line to help them out with their um, campaigns. And basically by joining forces, we can uh, build a, a larger movement faster. And also a lot of that money and a lot of those names kind of left for good in, in a way. So um, what we want to do is we want to build the party. We're not looking at just vote for me this one election. And I'm not doing this as a personality, like vote for Joe. I'm doing this as vote libertarian. This is the answer so that, um, and, and, and I'm not trying to gloss over the uh, platform. Again, I'm following the platform word by word by word so that when I do attract people that they stick around and, and not find out later on, what do you mean open borders? <laughs> or what do you mean, uh, you know, social security, you're going to get rid of social security. So it's kind of a chicken and egg thing, because I've I've long believed that a third and fourth and fifth party um, would very much come along and break up the two party duopoly. And I think I think you can you could go all the way back to Howard Dean, but definitely Ron Paul the Tea Party, which I was, which I was part of that, and then fast forward to Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. These were all like disruptors that were breaking apart the top-down system of the two-party duopoly. And and even Tulsi Gabbard, even though she got um, um, kneecapped by her own party, these are all signs of of competition and health in the party. But it's it's still almost it's it's so frustrating because. Um, the two-party duopoly also controls the presidential stage, and they keep changing the rules every time a candidate gets close. Gary, by by the Ross Perot rules, Gary Johnson would have been on that stage. So, how do you, how do you finally crack that nut? I mean, it, these guys are these guys are a train wreck, and we need competition, but they also control the rules of the game. Absolutely, they do, and unfortunately, they just won a court case in which they get to set the rules. And you're absolutely right. What they do is they, they set the bar um, low enough that people go, well, that's reasonable. 
but just high enough that nobody can meet it. <laughs> so notice how close Jer Gary Johnson got to, like, you know, one and a half percentage points away. So what we're doing is we've got social media. We're trying to get around the media. We're trying to spread the word. And we are making headway. In fact, one of the things that I'm so ecstatic about is how many non-libertarian volunteers we have on the, on the campaign. And we had them from the beginning, because normally when you start out, you know, you've got your core supporters and people from the Libertarian Party, I just want to help you out. And then as the message spreads, then other people hear about it. But no, we were getting people right from the start. And, you know, it, probably one reason is as the media keep saying, we've got two old rich white guys running. And so that certainly helps my cause. Uh, but well, first of all, I'll take anybody's vote uh, for whatever reason. But um, but I think people are looking for a real alternative, and I think they see me as representing a real alternative. Okay, let's uh, let's leave it there. I, I think that's a that's a great way to end this. And let me say, please go to my website at joj2020.com and check us out. Okay. And vote for us. At, vote for me in November as well. And let's let's show. Um, even if we don't win the election, if we can just get a higher percentage to make a difference and to show people that there is an alternative and maybe it'll trickle down to other candidates at state and local levels. Okay. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. I appreciate uh, being on here. Thanks for watching Kibbe on Liberty. By now, you know, this is the most important event of your week. So make sure you subscribe on YouTube. Click the little bell so you get notifications. Kibbe on Liberty, mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.